Before we get into our passage uh, this morning, I'd like to pick up on something Ron said about the missions conference. Uh, It's starting next Saturday night with a concert, and I just wanted to make sure you guys were all aware that you are invited. The high school is sponsoring it, but it is not for the high school students only. They are sponsoring it for the rest of us. The musician, a woman by the name of Patrice Gromins, plays an acoustic guitar, and her uh, desire is through her songs to lead us to worship our our wonderful Lord. And it's also the first opportunity that uh, we will have to hear our missions conference speaker, uh, Tom Houston. He is the first non-American president of World Vision International. Um, He's a Scotsman, a pastor, a great Bible teacher. So I really encourage you to be here at six days from tonight, next Saturday night. Well, turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 4. We're going to pick up right in the middle of the chapter, verse 13. We're finishing uh, this morning the passage that David started last week. It's a passage where Paul uses the life of Abraham as an illustration of the point he made back in chapter 3. The point was that the, that the only source of true righteousness, the only way that we can be accepted by God is by grace through faith. If you remember last week, we, we focused on uh, our heroes of faith. We focused on Abraham and David, looked at their lives and realized that they were, in fact, sinners like you and I. They weren't perfect. In fact, in some ways, they were worse than you and I. In some cases, they were scoundrels, scallywags. We focused on the fact that even though they were sinners, in need of God's grace, God did justify them by faith. See, I think um, it was possible to leave last week having realized that these men were sinners, like you and I, needing God's grace, but to still think, well, these were our heroes of faith. These were faith warriors. They had something I just don't have. See, we can look at at their lives and say, these were real men of faith. Maybe I'm not. Jesus said, if you had the faith the size of a mustard seed, that's a little seed smaller than than a, a, a poppy seed. So if you had just that much faith, you can say to a mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it'll go throw itself into the ocean. Well, how does that make me feel? I can't move mountains. You know, if this is a a true comparison, then in order to see my faith, you would need an electron microscope. The problem that we're facing is that if faith is the key then we're left asking ourselves, do I have that kind of faith? I used to love to read missionary biographies. I read one about a guy by the name of George Mueller. He was a missionary in the middle of the last century. He ran an orphanage in Bristol, England. He was a man of faith. He believed God when God said, the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. So he would get up at 4 a.m. every day so that he could spend at least three hours praying before his day began. He made a decision early in his ministry that he would tell no one about the needs of his ministry or his own needs except for God alone. And so the the orphanage had no visible means of support. 
Sometimes the food and the money would run out. And what Mueller would do is he would go ahead, set the table, get the children all in their seats, and then he'd ask the blessing and wait, see what God would do. And there was one story where he had just done that. He said grace. No sooner had he said amen, there was a knock on the door. man was standing there. He says, hey, I've got this dairy truck. It's broken down. All the food's going to spoil. Can you use it? He brought in and fed the children. There's story after story after story of how God came through. Well, that's what faith looks like. But then I look around. And I say, uh, are there people like that around here? Well, there are. I know some. But I'm still left. Do I have that kind of faith? Do you have that kind of faith? If all the riches of Christ are ours through faith, do we have what it takes? We do well to examine closely just what this faith is. Fortunately, that's what our passage this morning is about. Paul begins by explaining to us what faith is not. I think it's often helpful to, to start to examine what something is by looking at what it is not. I think there are any number of wrong ideas of just what faith is. Faith is not just doing your best to exclude any doubt from entering your mind. It is not an exercise in, in mental gymnastics. That if you can just keep questions from popping up, that you have strong faith. That is not what faith is. Nor is, is faith an exercise in denial. Refusing to face facts. Refusing to face reality. It isn't faith that leads the cancer patient to deny the doctor's diagnosis and to try to go on living life as if nothing was wrong, nothing had changed. That's foolishness, not faith. And faith is also not an exercise in self-deception. One of the most popular ideas of faith today is that you can believe the most absurd things as long as you believe them hard enough. As long as you wish for something strong enough, it'll come true. If you're good enough at mental imagery, that which you imagine can become a reality. Well, that's not faith, that's fantasy. Paul, as I said, begins our passage by saying what faith is not. And then he goes on to describe Abraham's faith so that we see what faith really is. And we see how it grows stronger and stronger, how faith matures. But let's start with verse 13, Romans 4. For the promise to Abraham or to his seed that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void, and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath. But where there is no law, neither is there violation. Paul says that faith is not through the law. Faith is not just trying to do your best at living up to the standard of the law. Even when you understand accurately what that law is. You know, Jesus summarized the law As love, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that's accurate. That's what the law is all about. But faith isn't just trying to grit your teeth and do that with all your strength. That's not the way it works. Your best isn't good enough. 
We've already seen that demonstrated in the first three chapters of Romans. And we often say to our children, whether or not they do well, well, you did your best, and that's all that really matters. No one could ask any more from you. Well, that's really encouraging to say to our children, and it's good that we do that. But when it comes to life and death matters, it doesn't work that way. A man who has just drowned, it does him no good to go up to him and say, well, you did your best. He's still dead. His best was not good enough. In fact, Paul says that it can't work that way. If God defined faith as doing our best, he would be reneging on the whole promise. He'd be nullifying the whole promise. You see, what would have happened was he made a promise to Abraham, then 430 years later, when he gave the law to Moses, he would have added page after page of fine print. Some of our star football players uh, feel justified in changing contracts after they're signed, but God doesn't function that way. When God gives his word, it stands. In fact, if God did function that way, as, as Paul says, the, the promise would be null. It would be void. It would be useless because all that fine print would have ruined it. It asks far too much for, from us. We can't fulfill it. We can't live up to it. If that's how our approval before God, if that's how our sense of worth, our purpose in life, our acceptance before God himself, if that's how it's gained, we are hopeless. This is so because far from being of faith, the law brings wrath. That's what he says in verse 15. First line, for the law brings about wrath. Those of you who were here uh, several weeks ago when David was explaining Romans 1, heard him explain the wrath of God, at least in part, as God leaving us, leaving mankind to their own devices. Leaving mankind to figure it out and to suffer the consequences of their own attempts to do the best they could. You see, when we say, God, I'll do the best I can, he says, okay, I'll let you try. Go ahead, work it out. And the result is always disastrous. When we try our best, the result is either one of two things. Either we end up despairing, we end up uh, discouraged and desperate because we realize we just can't do well enough. Or on the other hand, the other result is a superficial sense of, of righteousness and a judgmental attitude toward others. You see, in that case, what happens is, is, is we try to do our best, but we can't handle it all. So we pick one or two rules to obey meticulously. And then we treat with contempt anyone who doesn't obey those, those exact same rules in the exact same way. See, this is the path of the Pharisees who killed our Lord. This is the path that has been taken over and over throughout history. And the most unspeakable horrors have been done in the name of Christ. This is the, the path of legalism. In fact, whenever faith and law are confused. You end up seeing the disintegration of true religion, the disintegration even of the human personality. 
Whether it is the viciousness of an inquisition, or whether it is, is just the, uh, the cruelty of, of ignoring the hurting among us, looking down on them, keeping ourselves separate. In the process of doing our best, we lose the whole thing. We obey a few rules, but as Jesus said, the heart of the law, the spirit of the law is love, love for our God and love for each other, and we lose that entirely. It's replaced by the insidious cruelty of legalism. But mere abandonment of the law, throwing the law out, doesn't work either. As Paul says there in the rest of verse 15, he says, It's true that where there is no law, there is no violation. But even though people may not be explicitly violating the law, they may not be deliberately disobeying God, they're still getting torn apart. And they're still dying as a result. It's like having a a sign on the edge of a cliff saying, please do not walk off this cliff. People ignore the sign. They keep walking off the cliff. They end up at the bottom all bruised and broken and bleeding. Well, the solution isn't to climb back up and cut the sign off. Because you still have people ending up at the bottom of the cliff, all bruised and broken and bleeding. They just don't have any idea why they got there. And see, that's where our society is today. See, I think our society has intelligently rejected the grotesque religion of legalism. It's ugly. But in so doing, they've thrown out the law and are still trying to do the best they can. They're trying to win the game, but they just don't have any idea what the rules are anymore. They're doing the best they can, but they're still ending up bleeding and bruised and broken. Families are still falling apart. People are still getting destroyed, but they just don't know why, where it's coming from. I've been on the BSU campus for about five or six years now, and I've never seen kind of the magnitude of the the, the destruction going on in people's lives that we're seeing this year. People are, are believing what they're told about how to go after life. And they're going after it. And they're following all the rules that the world gives them. And they're getting torn apart. And they don't know why. They're being destroyed by addictions to to alcohol or drugs. They're being uh, ravished by sexual slaveries. They're being just confused, depressed, lost. Our society is groping, is looking around for something solid to hang on to, some uh, stable reference point for direction. Apart from the law, they're still trying to do their best, but they're ending up with death, and they just don't know why. You see, throwing out the law doesn't solve the problem any more than gritting our teeth and deciding we're going to obey it. Neither works. The law carries the important function of showing us that we can't do it on our own. You take a look at the life of Christ. You see what love really looks like when it's lived out. And we're left with no option but to say, Boy, my best isn't even in the ballpark. My best isn't good enough. See, that has been and still is the purpose of the law. To bring us to the point where we realize our own resources are inadequate. 
so that we can hold out an empty hand and receive all that God would give us in Christ. And it's only when that hand is empty, when it's uncluttered with our own resources and unfilled by our own attempts to do our best, it's only when that hand is empty that it can be filled with all that God would offer us. This is uh, what faith is. This is the kind of faith we're talking about this morning. Not the powerful resource to, to screw up the courage and the fortitude to do it on your own. But the simple act of holding out an empty hand to be filled by God. And this is what Paul goes on to say, verses 16 and 17. For this reason, it is by faith that it might be in accordance with grace in order that the promise may be certain to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, that is the Jews, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations, I have made you in the sight of him whom he believed, even God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist." Okay, so the law is no solution. It doesn't provide what's needed. The only solution is God's promise, God's grace. By holding out that empty hand, we receive the promise. We receive all that our hearts long for. We receive life. We receive our worth. We receive guidance and direction in life, purpose, reason. We receive acceptance and approval by God himself. Did you hear why God did it this way? It says about halfway through uh, verse 16, in order that the promise may be certain. See, it's his desire that the promise actually come to be fulfilled. As long as it depends on us and our best efforts, it will never be certain. In fact, the only thing that is certain is that we won't make it. Today, people live with intense insecurity because they're left to doing their best. And the fact is, that isn't good enough. But God does not want us to live under that insecurity. He wants the promise to be certain. And that's why he did it this way. The term he uses here for certain is a Greek word, babaeon. I looked it up. It means a legally guaranteed security. It's money in the bank, not uh, secured by some federal agency, but secured by the God of the universe himself, the one who has taken it upon himself to accomplish what he's promised. As it is written, a father of many nations I have made you in the sight of God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. Do you hear the tense that is used there? A father of many nations, I have made you. He puts it in the, in the past tense. When he was talking to Abraham, Abraham was not the father of many nations. But God puts it in the past tense because from his perspective, as, as Paul says, in the sight of God... It was as good as done. It was a sure thing. 
You know, from Abraham's perspective, it might have seemed rather tenuous. But from God's perspective, knowing that it does not depend on human resources, does not depend on circumstances, it was as sure as if it had already happened. When Paul uh, makes this quote, he's referring back to Genesis 15 and 17 and 18, where God made the promises to Abraham. And if you remember, that's where God changed Abram's name to Abraham. And the reason he changed his name is because he wanted his name to be an affirmation itself of the promise. Abram was changed to Abraham because the Hebrew for father of a multitude of nations, is Av Haman Goyim. God took the Ham from Haman, which is his multitude, and stuck it on the end of his name, so that his name would mean father of a multitude. Now God did that so that Abraham would have a constant reminder of the sureness of the promise. But think about it, if you were Abraham... Walking around saying, my name is father of a multitude. Someone walks up to you and says, oh, well, that's neat. Well, how many kids do you have? Uh, None. From Abraham's perspective, he was hanging out there. He was in a position to look real foolish. But from God's perspective, it was as good as accomplished. From Abraham's perspective, he was the father of no one. What about from our perspective, 4,000 years later? You remember when when God uh, made the promise to Abraham? He took him outside and he said, look up in the stars. And he looked up there and he just saw a sky full of stars. There in uh, in Palestine where there's uh, very little humidity, and at least back then very little pollution, no distracting lights. The The sky is just brilliant. With stars, I was uh, out there several years ago in the Sinai Desert. And I spent a couple nights out in the desert, laying on top of my car. I slept on top of the car, just looking up and being overwhelmed by how many stars were out there. And God took Abraham and said, so shall your descendants be. Well, how many stars do you think Abraham saw? At least hundreds, thousands And I don't know how much the eye can perceive, but maybe he even saw millions of stars. Right now, today, alive on this earth, are well over one billion people who call on the name of Jesus Christ as their Savior. You see, from our perspective, it's already happened. And it continues to happen. From God's perspective, it was a sure thing. It's only from Abraham's perspective that it was faith. Let's continue in Abraham's perspective. Verses 18 and 19. It says, In hope against hope he believed, in order that he might become a father of many nations, according to to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. And without becoming weak, In faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Paul says, in hope against hope, Abraham believed. That is, in the face of a hopeless situation, he chose to hope in God. 
He chose to believe that what God said would happen. That was in the face of absolutely no human resources that were adequate to make it happen. And that was in the face of no humanly reasonable hope that it would happen. You see, Abraham had two problems to face. One was his own age and his wife's age. As David said last week, Abraham was probably well over 75 when he first received the promise, over 100 when Isaac was actually born. He was an old man. And Sarah was an old woman. She had already gone through menopause. As far as human resources, it didn't look good. It was too late. There weren't any human resources adequate to the situation. But that was only half of Abraham's problem. That was only one of Abraham's problems. The second was that God had said, through his seed, the entire world would be blessed. Even if he had a little boy already. Wouldn't that seem rather grandiose that this little boy is going to bless the whole world? Here's Abraham in this little backwater country, in the corner of the then-known world, and expecting his little boy to bless all the great nations, the, the nation of Egypt down south, and, the, and the, the civilizations of Mesopotamia, and the Assyrians in the north, and all these wonderful civilizations were going to be blessed by this little guy. And that seems a little absurd. So not only was the lack of human resources a problem that Abraham had to face into, just the magnitude, the grandness of the promise had to be faced into. And Abraham did face it. He looks straight at it. I enjoy the way that uh, verse 19 starts in the NIV. It says, Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact. Abraham faced the facts. Faith faces facts. But realize, as he faced the facts, in my translation, even contemplated them, thought about them, considered them, he concluded that the word of God outweighed all the problems, all the obstacles. This was not an illogical belief. It was not an unreasonable belief. Even though no human resources could be found, it's logical because Abraham knew precisely who he was dealing with. The God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. All that is. And Abraham knows that that's who he's dealing with. He knows that this is the same God who breathed life into the collection of minerals and and chemical compounds we call a human body. Same God who said, let there be, and there was. The God who called into existence that which did not exist. See, and Abraham could look around him and see in all of creation the power and the wisdom and the subtlety of God. In chapter 18 of Genesis, where the promise is repeated, God says to Abraham, Think about it. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? And I'm sure that got Abraham thinking. And the only logical conclusion he could come to, the only reasonable answer to that is, well, no. There is nothing too hard for God. He can do anything. So you see, faith like this 
is eminently logical. It is eminently reasonable. Last week, uh, David used an illustration to clarify this, that, um, that what matters is the object of our faith, not the quantity or the quality of our faith. He used the illustration of a man trying to cross a frozen river, crawling on his hands and knees for fear that the ice was too thin and it would break and he'd fall through. And he gets about halfway across and he hears all this commotion and clamor behind him, turns around, sees his father driving a team of horses with a heavily laden wagon full speed across the river. Well, the point that David made last week was that it didn't matter how much faith these people had. If the ice was too thin, both the father and his crawling son would have ended up at the bottom of that river. But, having seen his father cross with a, a team of horses and a full wagon, is it not eminently logical for that man to stand up and walk boldly across? It makes sense. He could still crawl if he wanted to. He could still go across tentatively, and the ice would hold. He'd just end up on the other side with cold, wet hands and bruised and dirty knees. He could just as well get on his horse and ride. Again, that is the type of faith we're looking at in Abraham's case. That is a faith that does not deny problems, looks squarely at them and grasps the truth. And the truth is that God can handle it. This is a faith that is an accurate assessment of the lack of human resources on the one hand, but also an accurate assessment of God's adequate, abundant, ample resources on the other. See, Abraham went through that assessment and he came to the only sensible conclusion that God's resources are adequate. He can do exactly what he said. And so Abraham stuck out his empty hand to have it filled. Verse 20 says, Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what God had promised, God was able also to perform. You see, having come to the logical conclusion, having arrived at the truth of God's adequacy, Abraham held on to it. And as a result, his faith grew stronger and stronger. And the result of that was twofold. First of all, God was glorified. And secondly, Abraham grew more confident. You know, today we live in a crisis of confidence. We're told, you've got what it takes. If you dig down deep enough, it's there. And we dig down deep. And we go all the way to the bottom, and we're scraping the bottom, and it's not there. But we look around us, and here are all these together-type people. And they don't look like they're screaming inside. They look like they're calm and composed. But we don't realize that under the facade, they're screaming inside, because their resources weren't there either. We live in a crisis of confidence. And here's the solution. Here is the key. 
How did Abraham not waver in faith? How did he hold on to the truth? How can we hold on to the truth? When I first came to this church about eight years ago, I was in a a Bible study with David Roper, and we were going through some of the Psalms. One of the Psalms I remember going through very distinctly is Psalm 103. That's a, a Psalm where King David is talking to himself. He addresses his soul, and he starts saying some things. I wish I had time to read the whole Psalm, but I don't. Let me read just a few verses. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. So far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He's mindful that we are but dust. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. See, what's going on here is King David is reminding himself of who this God is, of what this God is like. The way David Roper put it, and I'll never forget this because this is one of the, the most uh, meaningful for me, the, 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 one of the best principles I've ever learned, is that we need to talk to ourselves rather than listen to ourselves. And that's what King David was doing. He was talking to himself. He was reminding himself of the truth. Because when we listen to ourselves, all we hear is our own fears screaming in our ears. All we hear is our own inadequacies being rehearsed over and over. All we hear is the lies of the world coming at us constantly. But when we talk to ourselves and remember God's greatness and His grace, we can hold on to the truth. We can can not lose our grip. And the result is, first of all, that it brings glory to God. God's trustworthiness, God's power, God's wisdom, God's subtlety, His subtlety, His ability is on display in our lives, just as it was in Abraham's. When we look closely at Abraham's life, we realize it wasn't Abraham who gets the credit. It was the one who was at work in Abraham. It was God who gets the credit for fulfilling the promise. The result of faith is always glory to God. And the second result here was that Abraham's confidence grew. He grew more and more confident because his confidence was not in his own resources or in circumstances or in some strange fate. His confidence was in God. Having seen a wagon pulled across the ice and walked across it yourself, it's that much easier to walk across again. The ice doesn't get more reliable. It's just that our confidence grows with experience. The same thing was happening with Abraham. All this happened 4,000 years ago. But why was it written down? Paul gives us a little explanation here. Verse 22, Therefore also it was reckoned to him as righteousness. 
Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was reckoned to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be reckoned, as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered up because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Paul says it was written for us. For two reasons. One, so that we might know how we can approach God. The only way for us to approach God is by grace through faith. With that hand empty. Accepting all that He desires to give us. But the second reason it was written is that we that it might be easier for us to have faith. Again, we look at Abraham's life and we see a wagon completely filled, being drawn by horses, cross the river. The promises did come true. Abraham and Sarah did have a boy, Isaac. And through Isaac sprang the nation of Israel. And from the nation of Israel came the the ultimate seed, Jesus Christ himself, who was delivered for our transgression and raised for our justification. You see, we've seen a Sherman tank cross the river. Jesus Christ was cold, stone, dead. It wasn't an out-of-body experience. It wasn't a near-death experience. He was cold, stone, dead. And the God who gives life to the dead raised Him to life. And by placing us in Him, the God who calls into being that which does not exist has created a whole new people for His name. A people that is covering the globe. A nation that is growing faster today than it has ever grown before. You see, it has happened. The ice held. And there's no reason for us to not not walk boldly across that. To see that it can hold us too. And the same God who gives life to the dead gives life to your cold, dead spirits so that you can enjoy life as it was intended. You can experience the real joy, the peace, not the removal of difficult circumstances, but the power of God manifest in those circumstances through holding our empty hand out. And experiencing his peace and his joy and his wisdom, his approval and his acceptance. And the God who called into existence that which did not exist will use you powerfully to show his glory. You see, his kingdom is still being built and he's going to use you to do that. That may seem a little grandiose. Here you are sitting in Boise, Idaho, you might be thinking, well, I don't have a whole lot of gifts and skills. I don't have a whole lot of human resources. But the same God who is going to use you is the same God who used Abraham and Sarah. You see, through you, God is going to lead a neighbor to himself or a brother or sister or a parent. Through you teaching in a Sunday school class, a child is going to call on the name of the Lord. Through you involved in a growth group, using your gifts, 
God is going to bring healing to people here. Through you at your job, associates are going to enter the kingdom. Some of you are going to change your lifestyle so that you can commit more time to serious ministry. Some of you are going to go out from here into foreign lands. Not just young people, but families, older singles, retired people. And others of you are going to change your lifestyle so that you can support these people that are going out and pray for them, be involved in the things they need, give to them financially. You see, through you, all the kingdoms of the earth are going to be blessed. You don't believe me? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? Now talk to yourself and hold out your empty hand. This morning, we have a treat for you. There's a man among us who is a man of faith, a man who has been justified by faith, a man who has been used by God powerfully to advance his kingdom, largely through God's work in Claude and Barbara Levitt, two uh, almost entire Indian tribes call on the name of Christ. These are, are people of faith but not super faith, just the plain old garden variety faith that Abraham had, that you have, that I have. 